Hey, good morning, Emmanuel. Welcome to worship today. As uh, Pastor Jungmo mentioned, um, this is the first public announcement that we've given that November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, that's a Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we're calling what, um, well, what I'm calling is a divine timeout. And what that means is we're just going to call a timeout into our regular worship schedule and rhythm of the life of the church, and we're going to focus on revival services. Um, Pastor Kerry Willis, who is our district superintendent, we're part of a global church called the Church of the Nazarene, and there's many districts within the Church of the Nazarene, and Kerry Willis is our district superintendent, and so he's going to be here November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and I want to encourage you to just carve out that time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and it's just a time out to go, you know what, I'm going to focus on my relationship with the Lord in a very intentional way. And so the Sundays, evenings before that, four Sunday evenings before that, we're just going to gather at Emmanuel and spend some time in prayer focusing on those revival services. Turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 29. Um, Would you stand, please, as we look at God's Word together? But the title of the message this morning is How Jesus Helps Us in Our Doubts. It's part of a broader series called Captivated, Worship Jesus, Be Like Jesus. But how many of you discovered it's pretty hard to be captivated with Jesus if you have serious doubts? They just kind of eat away at you. And so this morning we want to take a look at um, a man whose name is associated with doubt, Doubting Thomas. So John chapter 20, begin reading in verse 19. That Sunday evening, meaning the first resurrection Easter Sunday, that evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They killed Jesus... We're next. That's what they were thinking. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. That sentence is a whole other subject in and of itself. Now, one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, if you have the King James Version, it's Didymus. Thomas Didymus. Kind of a crazy name, but it's Thomas the twin was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were, locked, or were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Thomas was st- uh, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, Jesus said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. 
my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you won't believe, you believe me because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's you and me. Jesus gives a little prophecy and says, you believe because you've physically seen me, but there's going to be generations and generations and generations of people who follow me, but they've actually physically never seen me. Blessed are those people. So be blessed today because you're here and Jesus blessed you for believing in him though you have never physically seen him. Would you bow your heads together? Jesus, you are worthy of our captivation. You're worthy of our being enthralled. All of us should fall down in worship and say, my Lord and my God. Would you take our worship today? And now over these next few moments, would you help us to get a little bit further in our journey with you so that we can be more captivated with you and what it means to wrestle through times of doubt. Thank you for Thomas's story. It gives us hope. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in college, I attended Eastern Nazarene College, and if any of you have been to Boston, you'll know that they have an extensive subway system called the T. And I remember when I was a student there, I was headed into Boston, I was by myself, I don't know why I was by myself, but I just was going into Boston for the day, and I remember just kind of zoning out and watching the city go by as I was headed to my destination. And I allowed thoughts that I had been wrestling with to come to the surface. And I remember thinking these thoughts. How do I know it's all true? How do I know that there really is a God? How do I know that there was really a person named Jesus? I mean, a real historical person named Jesus Christ. Is there any evidence of Jesus outside of the Bible? How do I know that the resurrection is real? It is so unbelievable, so unfathomable, Yes, Jesus was dead, but he rose from the dead. Really? That seems far-fetched. And I just let these doubts come to the surface of my consciousness, and I was wrestling for months. And the struggle that I had was that I was studying to be a pastor. And I'm pretty sure you need to believe in Jesus if you're going to be a pastor. 
And I'm pretty sure that the central focus of believing in Jesus is you have to believe in the resurrection. And so you understand the tension inside of me. The truth is, is that sometimes we are faced with things that on the surface seem unbelievable. I uh, read something this week that just uh, made me chuckle. It was really smart people that were expressing how certain things were unbelievable to them. So consider this. Everything that can be invented has been invented. Charles Duell said that as the director of the U.S. Patent Office in 1899. <laughs> Ladies, forgive me. I'm getting a preemptive forgiveness. Sensible and responsible people, sensible and responsible women, do not want to vote. <laughs> President Grover Cleveland, 1905. Here's one. There is no likelihood that man will ever tap the power of the atom. Robert Millikan, Nobel Prize winner in physics, 1923. Heavier than air machines are impossible. Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society in London, 1895. I love this one. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is a novelty. Said a Michigan banker who advised Henry Ford's attorney not to invest in Ford Motor Company. The truth is, sometimes things seem so unbelievable that we just shake our head and say, that'll never happen. Or that didn't happen. There has to be some other explanation. Which is why I love the story of Thomas. In just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you, so why is this story in the Bible? But I constantly keep going back. I mean, of all the stories, of all the miracles Jesus ever did, of all the teachings that he ever did, like you realize that they could have filled many, 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 many books, but there's a reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put certain stories and certain miracles in the Bible, right? So I keep going back and I think, well, why did... If you want the disciples to look good, you're not putting this story of Thomas in the Bible. If you're trying to launch a worldwide ministry that's going to transform the world, you don't want one of the 12 being a doubter. That's why this story is so refreshing to me, because it's almost like John the Apostle is saying to us, it's okay to bring your doubts to the surface because we had our own and we wrestled through them. Then it got me thinking, what do we really know about Thomas? Similar to a couple weeks ago when I was talking about Philip, there's not a whole lot about Philip that we know. We know more about Thomas because he's been tagged with doubting Thomas. But what do we really know about him? Well, we know a couple things. First of all, Listen to this, sometimes we forget this. Jesus intentionally chose Thomas to be his disciple. The Bible says that Jesus, somewhere in his ministry, you know, within the first year or so, spent an entire night in prayer seeking the Father's direction on who should be 
the 12. And he picked Thomas. Didn't have to. Sometimes we forget. There was the three, there was the 12, there was the 72, there was the 125, and then there was the 500. These were the concentric circles of the disciples that followed Jesus. Did you know that? And Thomas was picked as one of the 12. We also know that Thomas was a pretty courageous, loyal guy. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 11, we're told the story of Lazarus. It's an interesting story because it starts off with Jesus getting word from the sisters, Mary and Martha, that Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. The inference is, get on your donkey and come right now. We need you to make a house call because we're not sure Lazarus is going to make it. Scripture says that Jesus, though he loved Lazarus, stayed for a couple more days where he was, and then he turned to his disciples and said to them, let's go to Judea. That was problematic because the last time Jesus was in Judea, he almost got himself killed. And so all the disciples, when they hear about Lazarus, and then Jesus waits for a couple days, they're basically like, oh, we dodged the bullet. He's not going back. And then a couple days later, Jesus said, no, I am going back, and you're coming with me. And all the disciples are like, "Uh, no, that's not a good idea. Do you remember? We almost got killed the last time we were there. You know what Thomas says? Kind of tongue-in-cheek, a little sarcasm. You know, Thomas is known as the Eeyore of the Bible. You know, Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore, Tigger. Okay? Thomas says this. Oh, let us go with him so that we can die also. Come on, we're going. And Thomas, in his heart, had settled the fact that if they died with Jesus, they died with Jesus. We also know something else about um, Thomas, that he was a pretty honest guy that said what he wanted to say, even if it was unpopular at the time. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is the upper room discourse. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be dead. But in this upper room discourse, Jesus, the dying man, telling his disciples his last words, and at a certain point, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will come back and get you, and you know the way that I am going. You know what Thomas says? We do not know the way that you're going, and we have no idea what you're talking about. And you can feel the disciples go, careful. But Thomas is like, no, seriously, stop talking in code. I mean, things are churning here, and we have no idea actually what you're talking about. And the truth is, none of the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about, but Thomas had the guts to say it. We know one more thing about Thomas. He did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Our verses begin with Jesus that first Easter evening showing up to the disciples and everybody is there except Thomas. And Jesus says, peace be with you, listen to this, the phrase peace be with you 
is really saying this. May all good things that you desire come into your life. Hello, boys. May all good things that you desire come into your life. I'm back. And then Jesus shows the disciples his hands. He, show, he lifts up his tunic and says, look at this. I mean, here it is. And the disciples freak out. They are so overjoyed, they can't believe it. And it doesn't say it in this scripture, but you have to believe that Jesus gives them a little lesson like he does to the two people who are on the road to Emmaus that he meant earlier that day and kind of went through some scriptures and says, come on, it's not like I didn't tell you this wasn't going to happen. You just didn't get it. But we're told that Thomas wasn't there. Now, where is Thomas? Um, nobody knows. No scholar knows. No, no biblical scholar has any idea where Thomas was. It's all conjecture. But it's not hard to conjecture. He's despondent. He's removed himself. You know, when you have a deep hurt, do you like to press in and have everybody around you? Or when you have a really deep hurt, do you isolate yourself? The room is split. If you're an extrovert, you want to gather people around you. If you're an introvert, you want to pull back and just lick your wounds. So it's not hard to imagine that Thomas probably went home and was binge-watching something on Netflix. But actually, it was all a haze. He's watching TV, but he's not watching TV. He's getting up to get something to drink, but he doesn't even know. How many of you have been so distraught that you're going through the motions of life, but you're actually not engaged? When we lost a child, Holly and I lost a child. When we lost a child, I remember that I had to go to work. And so I remember being at work, but for the life of me, I couldn't remember how I got there. Had someone dropped me off? Or had I driven? If I drove, there's like three different ways I could have gone to my work, but I couldn't remember which way I took. I was just in a haze. Now, interestingly, when the Bible says that the disciples were telling Thomas that Jesus was alive, the the Greek word that's used for telling Thomas is it's implied that they were constantly telling him. It wasn't just a, hey, we're going to go get Thomas and sit down and tell him that Jesus is alive and he showed up. It's actually they spent the next eight days Knocking on his door. Hey, we know you're in there. Let us in. Then they sit down and they tell him, I know it sounds unbelievable. I know it sounds unfathomable. But Jesus is alive. We all saw him. And if you're Thomas, you're thinking, you need counseling. This is what is some weird group think. Activity. And the Bible says that Thomas, listen, it doesn't say that Thomas said, "I, I, I just can't believe. It says, Thomas said, I won't believe. And there's a difference. Well, unbelievably, eight days later, Thomas is with the disciples. And this time, Jesus shows up. Same exact words, peace be with you. 
And the same thing happens, just like Jesus showed the disciples his hands and pulled up his tunic and showed them the side. He does the same thing with Thomas, and he goes, come here, Tom, come on. Here they are. Now remember, Jesus didn't hear Thomas say, I won't believe until I see his hands and his side. But Jesus knew it. A little piece that Jesus in his resurrected body is everywhere he wants to be, even if you don't see him. And then, of course, Thomas just goes, my Lord and my God. It's an expression of worship. Thomas doesn't have to literally put his hands in the side or Jesus' hands. He just, seeing Jesus is enough. And in Just like that, all of his doubts move into belief, and he's all in. Now, coming back to the question, why is this story in the Bible? It's it's in the Bible because we're meant to gain hope from it, but it's in the Bible for a couple other reasons. So let me give them to you. The first is... I think we're supposed to take away from this scripture that it's normal to have doubts about God. It's just normal. Now, for some people, it seems that faith comes pretty easy. And if you're one of those people, right? God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me, and you've never moved on, you've never moved off the dime of, well, maybe it's not, and and, and just faith came easy to you, praise God. I'm happy for you. But for most of us, we're skeptical. Most of us struggle with being skeptical. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, by the way, because it keeps us from being gullible. How many of you know there's not much of a difference between having an open mind and a hole in your head? Just a little bit. In fact, if you want scriptural basis for this, that skepticism is okay, John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 says of Jesus, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs that he was doing and believed in his name. All good. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. That is not Jesus being cynical. That is Jesus recognizing that just because somebody says something doesn't mean they're really all through it. The same people that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, King of the Jews, our Messiah, a couple days later are like, crucify him, crucify him. You know what I'm saying? Now it seems to me that there are different kinds or types of doubt. The first kind, I think, is just, I'll label it, natural doubts that are part of the normal process of growing and developing. I didn't realize it at the time, but actually this is where I was at when I was in college. College is a natural time. When you're a teenager, you're college, you're in your 20s, even maybe your your early 30s, there's just this natural curiosity, this natural inquisitive time, and you're always questioning, you're always curious. Well, how do you know this? 
And you're not necessarily trying to be a devil's advocate, but you're just in the exploration stage of your life. I just didn't realize it at the time, but it's a normal time when people go to college to just have their faith deconstructed and reconstructed. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Secondly, there are some doubts that come from personal insecurity. A lot of people struggle with doubts because they doubt themselves. They are, they are simply insecure. They are skittish. You know, I don't know. Did I say too much at the party? And now you obsess about whether you said too much at the party. Or was I standoffish and aloof? I don't know. You know, you know did, did I talk to five people at church? I think I passed somebody and didn't acknowledge them. Are they going to be upset because I didn't acknowledge them? I gave her a hug, but I didn't give him a hug. I don't know. Is he going to go home and be upset because I didn't give him a hug either? Stop. That's personal us coming out. And so there's a lot of times when it comes in our relationship with God, you're like, well, am I really saved? I mean, I I did say a prayer at the time. I meant it, but I don't feel it anymore. You know what I've discovered? God's bigger than your doubts. And what I really mean by that is, hey, Paul talked about this in one of his letters. God is bigger than our emotions. Emotions come and go. Sometimes you feel married, sometimes you don't feel married. Sometimes you feel great when you should be feeling bad. Sometimes you feel bad when you should be feeling great. And it's our personal insecurities that just become this this pot of stirring up of doubts. I don't know, am I really filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I haven't sensed God's presence in months. I don't know, maybe I've slipped. Maybe I've... I've, I've, Three. There are many doubts that arise from genuine ignorance. Mary, the mother of Jesus, asked a pretty important question. The angel says to her, Gabriel, the angel says to her that the Holy Spirit will come over you and you will bear a son and he will be the Messiah And if you're a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl, you're thinking, at the end of the day, i got to go home and explain this to mom and dad. No, I'm serious. Like, how does that work? The Holy Spirit did this to me. Wow. So you know what Mary says? Mary says, how can this be since I have never been with a man. And the angel's response is, with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary went, okay, all right, we can do this. In the same story, more or less, you've got an old priest by the name of Zechariah and an older lady by the name of Elizabeth. And they've been good, godly, righteous, holy people their entire lives, but they never had any children. Okay, why is that a big deal? Because back in that culture, by the way, this is not right, but back in that culture, childlessness 
was a sign of God's disapproval and punishment on your life. That's not right. But it was just one of those cultural things that they believed. You know, the psalm says children are a blessing from the Lord, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full, you know. And, and, and so, you know, you could always have these religious people that are like, you know, there must be some secret sin in your life if you don't have any children. And, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, though they were priests their entire life being faithful to God, they lived under the wet blanket of other people's disapproval and in their own heart wondering, are, are, have we disappointed the Lord? How many times do you think that Zechariah and Elizabeth got down by the side of their bed, held hands and said, God, point out any sin in my life. Because, oh, we'd love to have a child, and, and if there's something inside of us that's holding us back, then, then you show us. You understand? So one day, Zechariah's in the temple, performing his priestly function, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, your wife Elizabeth is about to have a child. And this child's going to be very, very special. His name is going to be John. We know him as John the Baptizer. And this, this child is just going to pave the way for the Messiah coming. Zechariah almost asks the same exact question as Mary does, except he says it in a different way. In our later years, are me and Elizabeth really going to have a child? How can I be sure that what you say is going to happen? Do you see the difference between Mary and Zechariah? Now here's where things get a little interesting. Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of Almighty God and you dare to question me? I'm just telling you, if an angel shows up and talks to me, I'm believing. There's a pattern. There's a continuum. From questioning to doubting to skepticism to unbelief. And Zechariah, though he was a good man, had come from questioning, why God hasn't this happened, to doubting, I don't know, maybe it's us, maybe God's not powerful enough, I don't know, to skepticism, it'll probably never happen, to collecting Social Security at 65 or 67 or whatever it is, and then they shut the door and said, never happened. Now listen, that's the same continuum that happens to us. Questioning, doubt, skepticism, unbelief. That's the same continuum that Thomas was on. Questioning, doubt, skepticism, unbelief. And for Zechariah, he got a little spanking. And that spanking was, um, we're closing your mouth until your son is born. And as soon as Elizabeth has her baby, 
Everybody assumes in the community that the baby's going to be named after the father, Zechariah. First words out of his mouth, the boy will be named John. Got it. Thank you. Number two, Jesus comes to us when we're struggling with doubts. I find this exceedingly beautiful. This is the reason why this story is in the Bible. Jesus does not leave you floundering. Jesus does not leave you with, well, you work it out yourself. Jesus comes to us when we're struggling with doubts. So why did Jesus come back a second time? He only came back for one reason. It was Thomas. Same event, eight days later, the same event. First time, Jesus shows the disciples his hands, pulls up the tunic. You got it, guys? Second time, peace be with you. Same thing, does it just for Thomas. What I've discovered is this. When I come with an open mind and an open heart, and I'm honest about my doubts, Jesus always finds a way to show me the way through my doubts. Now, I've discovered that a lot of doubts come from pain and woundedness, and Thomas was no exception. Many of the doubts that we struggle with come because, you know, God didn't answer a prayer that we desperately wanted him to answer. And then that brings us into, is God really good? Is God really powerful? Because if God was really powerful enough, I mean, he answered that person's prayer. Why is he not answering this prayer? If God is good, maybe he's good, but he's not powerful. Maybe he's powerful, but he's not really good. And so you just keep going back and forth, and all of these doubts stir up. But actually, they really come from a place of woundedness. Why did you let this happen? Pastor Ann, serving communion last week, said something I had never heard before, and it's taken me on this trail in my mind. I must have missed it someplace, but as soon as she said it, I thought, yeah, that's right. When Jesus rose from the dead and received a resurrected body, Why did he choose a resurrected body with wounds still in it? I mean, stop and think about it. If I'm getting a resurrected body, I'm dropping 30 pounds and gaining two inches. You know what I'm saying? When we get to heaven, we're all gonna, all the guys are gonna be like six foot three, we're all gonna be trim. That's heaven. Ladies, I have no idea what you want to do. Okay, I'm just telling you what guys want to do, okay? But I mean, seriously, if you could pick your resurrected body and Jesus is God, why did Jesus choose to have a resurrected body that still had wounds in it? There's only one reason. Listen very carefully. It is not the teaching Jesus that woos people to himself. It is not the miracle-working Jesus that woos people to himself. It is the wounded on the cross Jesus that woos people to himself. 
It's the resurrected Jesus that still carries the wounds that is most appealing to people. I find this to be fascinating. Thomas wants to see his wounds, and Jesus shows him his wounds. And go metaphoric with me for a moment. This is how Jesus shows up to you and shows up to me. He says, you give me your doubts. You give me your insecurities. You give me your problems. You give me your woundedness because, see, me too. We'll work this out together. Number three, your doubts are the door to deeper development. We should not be afraid to voice our uncertainties to God or others because God is never intimidated by our doubts. Many of the Psalms record the doubts and skepticisms of David and others. God, how come you're not acting like God? Doubts can drive you to a deeper answer. I mentioned earlier to you that my doubts drove me to the subject of apologetics. Apologetics is literally the, the, the defending of the faith. And so I took my doubts on the train to Boston, and rather than stuffing them back down inside of me, saying, I shouldn't think that way, I turned to the subject of apologetics, and here's what I discovered. Did you know that there is more written evidence of the existence of Jesus Christ outside the, outside the Bible, there's more written evidence in the ancient world that Jesus existed than there is that Julius Caesar existed. Nobody questions Julius Caesar existed. And yet, there's so much more ancient history outside the Bible about Jesus. All you got to do is type that in. Because I wanted to make sure that if somebody didn't believe me, you can just go back and type in, is there any outside historical evidence that Jesus Christ existed? You do that this afternoon, and you'll see a list of the historians that mention Jesus. And none of them were believers. All of them were antagonists. Did you know that there are approximately 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament? The chances of a person just fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies was calculated by a mathematician named Peter Stoner. And what he discovered was for a person to fulfill simply eight of the 300 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament, the, the chances of that happening are one in 10 to the 17th power. So everybody who's really good at calculus, come up to me afterwards and make sure I said this right. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. That's the chance. Of a person just fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled every one. I guess what I'm trying to say is, when I began to dig into apologetics, here's what I've discovered. It takes more faith 
to believe what skeptics say about Jesus than it actually does to just accept what Jesus and believers say about Jesus. My point is this. Bring your doubts to Jesus. He can handle them. Come with an open mind, come with an open heart, and God will find a way to turn your doubts into a pathway of deeper development. Do not isolate yourself like Thomas did. What I've discovered is is that if you will stay in community with other Christians, many of your doubts will be answered. You get into trouble when you remove yourself from community and just sit all day long binge-watching Netflix and just let your thoughts loop. And that's a spiral downward. So what happened to Thomas? Church history? Church history tells us that the disciples decided that they wanted to divide up the world to evangelize it. And so they sent different apostles to different places. Where did Thomas go? Thomas went to Iran, modern-day Iran. Then he went to China. But he ended up in India, the southern part of India. Did you know that there's a church in India India that that has historical documents that dates all the way back to when Thomas showed up? Southern India. It's called the Thomas Movement. And Thomas spent the rest of his life in India evangelizing for Jesus. Not bad for a guy that's known as Doubting Thomas. So what about you? For some of you, this message is like, yeah, I don't even care about this. This isn't even where I'm at. I've settled it in my heart. Wonderful. Praise God. You're going to have a moment at just the end when the worship team comes up you're going to have a moment to just say, I don't care about this message. I, my Lord and my God, and I'm just going to spend a few minutes worshiping and being captivated with Jesus. Right on. But for some of you, because we live in a skeptical age, for some of you, you're like, um, is it okay to bring my doubts to the Lord? Absolutely it's okay, because that's the pathway to deeper development. And so what you can do is this, and here's my promise to you. If you will, with an honest mind and an open heart, just bring whatever you want to bring to the Lord, doubts, fears, insecurities, whatever you want to bring to the Lord, He can more than handle it. And He will find a way to come to you Maybe it's through other people, maybe it's through your own reading, maybe it's through academic pursuits, maybe it's through apologetics, whatever it is, Jesus will find a way. Because Jesus never asks you for blind faith. He asks you for reasonable faith. I always thought growing up I'd have to have blind faith. You know, no facts, no whatever. And Jesus doesn't expect that. Jesus reveals himself to people who want him to reveal himself to. 
And maybe this morning, at the end, you can just say, I have lots of doubts, but I'm just bringing them to you, and I'm going to trust you that somewhere along the line in my own journey, you're going to quell those doubts. And then you can join the rest of people by just worshiping Jesus, saying, my Lord and my God. Would you stand, please? Jungmo is going to come and lead us in a closing song. It's a beautiful song, and here's my invitation to you. Why don't you just spend some time worshiping the Lord as your Lord and your God?
heads together. Take a moment, worship the Lord. In your own way, just say, God, I just give myself to you again. I want to be in your presence. I want to sit at your feet like we just sang about. I lay down my insecurities. I lay down my doubts. I lay down my skepticism. You're bigger than all of that. You're bigger than our emotions. You're just bigger than even our intellect. And this morning, we just uh, stand in awe of you as the risen Savior who comes to us, who nurtures us along in our faith, even when we struggle. Our Lord and our God, we honor you today. We bless your name. You are holy, you are high and lifted up. And yet you're so close. Help us this week to live in a mindset, in an attitude of worship. I pray this in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.